How should people think about expanding their product lines? First and best piece of advice, and if there's only one thing to take away from this podcast episode today, it's probably this. Ask your customers what they want. I see way too few companies do this, and I think that there's kind of this myth that you need to have this like huge customer research team and do all this research. Some companies that I've worked with have had their best product line extension ideas asking Instagram stories. You're listening to the Ecom Exits Podcast with your host, Nate Ginsberg. Learn the best tips and tactics to improve profits, cash flow, and maximize your e-commerce business value on the way to a successful exit. Welcome to the show. Hello, podcast listeners. Welcome back to the Ecom Exit Show. It's your host, Nate Ginsberg, here today, joined by Jeremy Horowitz, host of the Messenger Mastermind Podcast and Agency. Jeremy is also the owner and moderator of a group of 106 to eight figure e-commerce companies, has managed an eight figure Shopify sales channel, as well as seven figure Amazon sales channel, and been responsible for over 1.5 million in SMS revenue in the last year. So really excited to have Jeremy on, has a wealth of experience on and off off of Amazon that I'm excited to share with you all. So Jeremy, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm really looking forward to today. First, can you tell us a little bit about, you know, what is your jam? I mean, we we were chatting a little bit pre-recording about how you generally help businesses and, you know, with your Facebook community. And I think you're doing some really interesting stuff that the audience should hear about. Yeah, definitely. I would say that my core focus is how do we take a e-commerce business that's seen pretty good success already and how do we really help them scale to get to that next level? So when I think about that, I usually have three breakpoints. You have the what I call the e-com businesses that get through survival mode. So they break into that six-figure range. Then the e-commerce businesses that are in build mode that scale from that high six-figure range into seven figures and you have that scale mode scale mode, which is going from that seven figure to eight figure range. So primarily what we focus a lot of our efforts around are how do we help those businesses that are getting from six to six to figures to seven figures, jump up into that bracket with a lot of kind of your tried and true automations, better funnels, better ad campaigns. And then where we really spend the majority of our time is with seven figure businesses, helping them scale out both organically and through an acquisition perspective really building out their channels, extending product lines, really figuring out how to extend the value of their customer base so that they can really effectively and profitably, if we do our job right, jump up into that eight-figure range where they're a real healthy, stable business that's going to hopefully grow in an evergreen manner. I'm curious. So with your experience seeing a lot of businesses in the six, seven, eight figure range, you know, what are the biggest differences that you see in eight figure e-commerce businesses versus seven? Channel diversification and product line extension, I would say are the two fundamental differences in those two sizes. So a seven, you can scale a really awesome product with that solves a really great product in one marketing channel really well. If you hit everything perfectly, you can scale that to seven figures. I have rarely, if ever, seen someone be able to profitably scale that business into eight figures as well. And I'm not sure if anybody's a big fan of Ezra Firestone, but I consume almost everything that Smart Marketer puts out. And he's a big preacher of this. Once you master that one channel, that one product, it's all about your product line extension and increasing the 
ways that you can bring customers into your business. It's just honestly a law of math and a bit of a math problem, especially if you're selling physical goods. We can. It's a little bit of a different conversation on the info product side, but especially if you're selling physical goods, it's just it, there's a certain breakpoint where you just can't spend more money. The rent is too damn high on certain platforms. And so you really need to figure out, okay, how do we drive more revenue out of each customer so that we can continue to afford to spend more marketing dollars? Both of those things that you mentioned, expanding the product lines as well as the different sales channels. Let's start with the, the product lines. And so for the businesses that you've worked with and see that have success, what do these product lines look like and how should people think about expanding their product lines? First and best piece of advice, and if there's only one thing to take away from this podcast episode today, it's probably this. Ask your customers what they want. I see way too few companies do this, and I think that there's kind of this myth that you need to have this like huge customer research team and do all this research. Some companies that I've worked with have had their best product line extension ideas asking Instagram stories or sending a simple email with a simple keyword reply. Once you really have found that customer base, you know who your customer persona is, you know what's selling well, doing a little bit of research into what else are they buying, what do they want, what is something that's simple and complimentary, even adding something that is half the price point of your core product, but you know that someone will buy together, will, depending on the math and your margins, could double your profit per sale if you cross sell those two products effectively. So for example, back when I was an e-commerce manager at a phone case company, we sold a phone case that retailed for $70. And then we realized that this was like when pop sockets were blowing up, created a, a ring, which is essentially the same concept as a pop socket. We just didn't infringe on their IP. And by getting someone to add a $20 ring to their $70 purchase, it didn't really seem like it's that much increase of top line revenue, but it doubled our profit because we were spending so much in advertising to acquire that customer that that incremental revenue had a real meaningful impact. And so it's those little types of unlocks that I wish more businesses invested in because that is truly the fastest way to scale because then that incremental profit, you can either increase your ad spend, invest in new product, hire new team members to do whatever else you're currently killing yourself to get done. And so really figuring that out on the second side, if you want to be very bold, you can introduce completely new products. If you were first making t-shirts, now you can make hoodies. If you were first making, I don't know, pet toys, now you can make pet, you could introduce pet food or something in that respect. Obviously don't take any of those ideas directly, do the research, <laughs> right? You have your hero product that's been selling really well. And if you think about the really, really successful, long-lasting businesses, they've been able to figure out how to ride the trends to introduce new hero products that when people get tired of their original product or they really solve that problem and people don't need to buy that anymore, there's something that's next for them to continue to buy from the company. Makes a lot of sense. And it's all about small tweaks, adding a cross sell or an upsell. Mm -hmm. I mean, can have massive impacts on your average order value and your lifetime value of the customer, which can black and white put you in different categories in terms of ability to profitably acquire customers. And so I know it's one of these potentially like little hinges swing big, swing big doors expanding from single product to uh, one even uh, cross sell upsell. One thing I love that you said is about surveying your customers and people often overhype it. <laughs> what is a good way to survey your audience? So I'm a big fan of surveys. 
And there's a lot of incredible tools that you can use. Typeform, SurveyMonkey, there's like five that are popping up now. What's been really incredible to see, but it takes more time to go through is literally just ask an open-ended question. Uh, What is one thing that you want to see us making that we're not currently making? You can also ask another version of that question for your existing product. So if you could wave a magic wand and change anything about our product, what would it be? And so obviously you need some way to get in contact with the customer, whether that's email, Facebook Messenger, uh, Instagram, social media in some respect. But it can be really simple things like that. My one little hack for every survey is at the very, very last question, I leave it optional, but it says, if you'd like to be contacted by the team to expand on your answers, please leave your email below. And you get people who literally want you to ask them more questions, which if you have the time and bandwidth to jump on a 15 minute phone call with a couple of questions, you can basically just keep picking at the thread to really unwind what their thoughts are. The other thing we've also done is just literally taken all of the team's ideas put it in a multiple choice question that end user could pick as many of the options as they wanted and just say, hey, what do you want to see us make next? And that has that's actually how we researched and came to that PopSocket style accessory, the ring for my previous company was we just asked them what they wanted and that was the most requested thing. And then we had our product team work on that. It doesn't really need to be complicated. I mean, Obviously, the more scientific you want to get and the more rigorous you want to get, there's always an upper limit to that. But I really just think asking simple questions from your customers and trying to get as much data instead of heuristics. And what I mean by that is you're always going to have a couple people who are really, really loud and always making either requests or complaints. And it's really important to think of it from a percentage perspective. Like, is this 10% extremely loud or is this a common thing across 80% of our customer base? And understanding that distinction is really important as well. Yeah, I think that's really important that you bring that up because on one hand, I was thinking as you were explaining that, for example, giving people the opportunity when you say, you know, hey, if you're willing to answer some more questions, leave your email. When you first said that, I was like, oh, great. Yeah, giving people an opportunity to raise their hand to be able to get some really good insight from. Then on the other hand, the ones that are vocal and raising their hand isn't necessarily the majority. (laughs) So how do you distinguish between, you know, more maybe more like a silent majority? Yeah, so I like to have the same model and framework that I also think of when I get really excited about new business ideas of, do we see patterns here and does this keep repeating? Is this something that, okay, we know that Jane really wants red for our next release of leggings or pants or whatever, but does anyone else also want that? Like it's, it's, you have to verify it through other people as well. And so this is also why we really are big preachers of channel diversification is what we do a lot and what has been really successful for me in the past is we'll throw up what I call quick Twitch responses on Instagram. So simple yes, no polls. And we can get like a, hey, are you interested in this? Yes, no. Hey, what do you think of these two ideas? Yes, no. And then we can send people an email back to our same customer base, asking them more in-depth questions, right? Like assuming that there's a little bit of scale in both of those channels, you can get, I don't want to call it statistical significance, but you can get pretty, you can get data that you can be very confident in is representative. And also our favorite part of that is that then you can turn market research into sales of, I mean, the messaging is, I would brand it a little bit, but the concept is basically, hey, you asked for this, we went and made it, here it is. And we found that to be unbelievably successful when we actually go and execute the marketing side of this life cycle. 
you know, now I think good transition to jump into what do, you know, the differences you see between six, seven, eight figure businesses in, you know, in terms of what channels they are making sales from. And I'm going to hopefully use what I think is a clear analogy. So I would say six figure businesses are just trying to throw people over a wall and just get as many people to go over a wall as possible. I would say that seven figure channels are starting to build a bit of a network. It's not so much of, I think looking at probably the previous five, six years, it's really been, we run Facebook ads to some sort of landing page. We convert, run retargeting ads and we started all over again. Um, I think seven figure businesses are really starting to think through more of, okay, how do we run ads from maybe Facebook plus Google and YouTube or affiliate networks or multiple traffic sources? And then also how do we, where are some owned channels that we have on the back end that we can capture con- customers' contact information and keep them coming back? And obviously this is one example. There are many, many ways to build a business. And then eight figures, I would say really understand how to build the spider's web. So we're bringing people in from multiple different places all at the same time. And then we can even get into the, how this works with both an, a Shopify style business with an Amazon sales channel that a company is managing both for, but we're doing multiple things on the back end to extend their CLV. So sorry, customer lifetime value. So we've got email, we maybe have a private Facebook group. We maybe have SMS or Facebook Messenger and some other channel. And it's not so much about just driving the sale in that first interaction, but how do we bring someone into the web? I feel like that seven and eight figure business also has a better understanding of what their sales cycle looks like. And what I mean by that is, is how long does it take to get from a first touch to an actual first purchase? And so they know that, hey, maybe we're on a seven, 14, 30 day cycle. Some companies I work with are even at a six month cycle at a higher AOV. And so how do we make sure that we get them into the web at an affordable price? And then we know that the machine that we've built in all of these other areas through retargeting, through our community, through our own channels, will eventually bring them in. It's just a little bit of a different game. I think also when, when you can make the transition from six to eight figures, the big mindset shift that you have to have is you have to transfer from a hunting mentality to a farming mentality. And that really goes into also when you understand how long your sales cycle is. So when you say how long your sales cycle, you mean from first touch to purchase? Exactly. Yeah, like the first time that someone sees like a cold prospecting Facebook ad to when when you're actually charging their credit card. You said for some of the uh, larger cost products, this could be like a six month sales cycle. It's got to be like a big sporadic type purchase. I mean, they got to build it up or it's worth investing in, you know, six months to be able to make that sale because Mm -hmm. it's like a less common purchase. And so they need to be kind of planting those seeds way earlier. Yeah, definitely. I I think it's also a sliding scale to your AOV, right? Like if I'm going to ask you to buy a $2 stick of gum, I'm not going to need to build close to as much trust as if I'm going to ask you... $2,000 $2,000 to buy something for your home. Right. And so I think it's, I think it, you just, I mean, I think that's also, you just kind of have to like pound pavement a little bit and plow the field with your face to figure that out. But there's also a little bit of logic that can be applied to of like, how quickly are you really going to spend $5,000, $10,000, $20,000 versus like something sub 50 bucks. 
quick question on price points that you see that you know have success and so you were kind of mapping out the ideal product ecosystem from a price point standpoint like what would that look like it's really interesting cuz if you asked me that 2 months ago i would have said that i would recommend that a company has a minimum aov of 45 to 50 bucks but now that cpms have dropped that number can drop as well. There's just some hard math that goes into all of this. So to keep it simple, let's just say that you're operating at a 50% margin on a $50 product. So you're spending $25 in your landed cost. Mm-hmm. Advertising, the CPAs are now not as expensive, but CPAs two months ago were around $15 to $25 on Facebook. So at 50 bucks at a 50% margin, you're breaking even on your acquisition. Now, obviously, that's changed, and I know most of the audience is FBA, so you don't have to worry. I mean, there's the ACOS and mapping that in. So, I mean, there's also, depending on how creative you are, you can find creative ways to reduce your marketing cost. But Mm. if you really want to scale something that's direct to consumer and you're relying on paid media, I would really want to look at that $50 north range. If you're really creative and you know how to do tripwires and some self-liquidating offers, I think you can definitely get away with an entry, an entry product at $10, $15 maybe, but you really have to have a great back end where you're very quickly upselling and cross-selling other products to those customers to just make sure that you can recoup that advertising cost because most likely you're going to be either break-even or negative at that price point if you're running any type of paid media. I mean, I don't really think that there's ever a high end that you have to break at. I was actually talking to somebody last night who's thinking about joining a car company that is now thinking very much of an e-commerce focus. So, I mean, there's the upper end of the market as well. But I think you want to stick around somewhere in that range of $100 plus or minus 50 just because it's, especially if you're relying on paid media, just because it's the fastest way to understand one, if it's working, but also two, to make money, right? Like if you're selling someone over a six month cycle, getting 30 day reporting from Facebook is going to be extremely misleading because you could be touching somebody on Facebook four or five times over that initial three months and they're still making a decision. And then three months after all of that, they're going to make a purchase. So I think that you can be creative if you want to go low or if you want to go high. The only reason I like the middle is that it's the fastest way to spin something up and learn. And then you can always introduce entry point items and you can always figure out how to bring in higher price point items later. But it's, I think, especially if you're starting to build something, that's the fastest, that's the fastest way I've found that companies figure it out. My impression was something around like the $100 price point or order value, because it's something that it's still low enough that people will, you know, it can still be like an impulse buy. They're not Mm going to take six months to debate on whether or not they're going to buy it. But if your margin's 50%, would give you twice as much margin to play with to to acquire to acquire a customer than a $50 product. And like that's that's pretty substantial. And so yeah, and uh, I I mean just one quick thing that you mentioned. So you said that, you know, the last couple months during this COVID crisis, I mean, you've seen ad costs generally sounds like going down quite a bit. 
Oh yeah, we haven't seen from any measurement of how you want to calculate it, CPMs, CPLs, and CPAs. And for anyone who isn't familiar, CPMs is cost per million, CPL is cost per lead, and CPA is cost per acquisition. Uh, we haven't seen numbers this low since eight, 2018. Obviously, this won't hold, right? I mean, eventually advertisers will come back and spend in a meaningful way. But I mean, yeah, for right now, for any company that has the cash flow and can afford it, we've been telling them go heavy, especially on the, the lead acquisition side, just because it's one of those rare moments where these costs will never be this cheap again. And so we're just trying to, like essentially like the same idea as financial investors buying into the stock market now. Like if you can, if you can get these, it's, we, we also joke, we like to call it, this is our Black Friday. Like if you can just come in at these bargain basement prices, definitely do it. I'm obviously, if you don't have the cash flow, I don't recommend doing it. But yeah, I mean, even if people aren't buying, we're acquiring emails, planning and and phone numbers, planning things out for Q3 and Q4, especially for the businesses that are in the north end of seven and seven figures and looking to move to eight. We're really, we've built that the beginnings of that web. And so we know how the automations will perform, how the campaigns will perform, that we're willing to spend maybe a couple bucks to acquire an email or a phone number today because we know that we're going to make it back, not just this year, but over the next couple of years as well. Cool. So want to uh, shift gears a little bit and talk about, you know, things that you can do or what, what you see people doing, expanding channels. And so they have their one channel that's, you know, working and it's, it's, you know, they're profitable with, you know, that could be Amazon or, or others that, you know, you see businesses work with and, you know, what are things that people can do to really expand those channels and build their assets I would say that the biggest thing to do and the greatest opportunity that I see most businesses not taking advantage of is just moving your existing customer base into other channels. And so I feel like a lot of people have this fear that if I move them from my primary channel to a secondary channel, I'm going to lose out on my primary channel. And so a, a simple example that we spend a lot of time working on in this is email and SMS. They're extremely similar. They're both own channels. You can both build automations. You have to get opt-in ahead of time. They both work very successfully off of a lead magnet structure. But we constantly hear that people don't want to move people off of their email list because it's for most e-commerce businesses, typically they're one of their best revenue drivers and most profitable marketing channels as well. But when you just see the comparative numbers, I mean, I think a great email program has a 20% open rate, a one and a half percent click-through rate, and hopefully a half percent conversion rate or order rate. SMS, we're seeing 98% open rates, 30% click-through rates, and eight to 10% conversion rates. At a certain point, it's just math. Like if you move people who are opening your emails to now open your SMS messages, you're getting a, f a four to five X open rate. We see a lot of concern that SMS is going to cannibalize email and all of these other things. And we found the actually the exact opposite to be true. So for example, if you are an Amazon seller and you do have a strong email list already, think about spinning up an SMS service and just offering a compelling reason why that list who's already subscribed to your email list should, should subscribe to your SMS list. The other piece that I would think of is, and so this goes back a little bit to my time when I managed a Shopify Plus and Amazon business at the same time for a growing company that also had retail distributions. So that's, that was an interesting challenge. But thinking about how you can take 
Amazon as an acquisition channel and convert those customers into longtime Shopify customers. And I think a lot of people will immediately hear that and be extremely hesitant and be like, you're an idiot and you don't know what you're talking about. But my one point will be there are certain Amazon hardcore customers who will never move off of Amazon. So you don't really have to worry about losing them. What you should be more focused on are the people who come and try your products on Amazon and thinking about how you can own the relationship with them moving forward because Amazon is a great place for discovery, but it's also a very competitive landscape where if you can't build that relationship, a customer might go and just try another product and another product and another product in your niche and area. Whereas if you can capture someone's email or phone number, if you can get them into a Facebook retargeting pixel, there are a lot of opportunities for you to either introduce new, new and different products to them, give them more education about the services and other things that you provide. Amazon is one of the largest sales channels in the world, right? It's got 180 million active customers every month. It's an enormous opportunity and it's a great way to get eyeballs for cheap. You can run an extremely scaled Amazon business that also just naturally feeds your direct consumer channel, especially considering that this podcast is centered around people who are either preparing their business for exit or have just acquired a business. Thinking through an asset perspective from that, you can diversify your sales channels. You can build owned lists that then also become assets in their own right. I think that is one of the greatest opportunities because then you can also start collecting information on your customers from your direct-to-consumer channel, which then can feed how you decide to address your Amazon business. Like we took a lot of our keyword and search related results and info from Amazon and translated that into a really, really strong Google PPC campaign and program for our D2C channel. And so there's a lot of, I don't want to call it synergy, but there's a lot of symbiosis between those two channels if you have the right mindset. A big challenge for FBA, Amazon dominant businesses is really building some assets off of Amazon. And so, you know, what strategies have you seen that work? Yeah. What would you recommend for Amazon heavy businesses that want to build off Amazon assets? Yeah. So the two things that I've seen be the most successful first is building some sort of warranty program and then uh, including a package insert so that your customer who buys your product off of Amazon has to go to your website to then leave their email to qualify for the warranty program. And then there's a, what essentially is like a, a repurchase campaign and a brand indoctrination campaign that someone gets after they get their confirmation that they got their warranty. So an example of a company that I think does this brilliantly is Yeti. Started with coolers, now they make tumblers and just all, a whole bunch of outdoor accessories. And if you buy any Yeti product now, actually, they have a little package insert. They give you the direct URL to their website. That's a great tactic. It's tried and true. It's by no means a new tactic, but I think it's good if you have any channel if you can put package inserts and you cut or a sticker or something in your information, in your product and in your packaging before it gets to Amazon, that is a big win. The other play that I've actually seen that's very, very new and you need to have a specific, well, actually you can do it with any direct mail vendor. I've only, I've only seen it executed through one specific Shopify app is you can export all of the physical addresses out of Amazon and send them mail. 
There's an app that integrates with Shopify that also pulls in all your Shopify data called Postpilot that we've seen a couple of companies execute this really well. So essentially you export a CSV from Amazon of all of your customers and their addresses by the product that they bought, import that CSV into this app called Postpilot, and then send them direct mail with some sort of offer to buy from your direct consumer site. It's too early to know whether that's a white hat, black hat, or gray hat tactic because technically you're not violating their terms of service. But that being said, I, um, I'm not fully endorsing it yet just because I don't know where Amazon's going to lie on that. And I definitely don't want to recommend anything that is going to get you kicked off of Amazon. And then the third tactic, which I think is probably the most valuable and will be the best for the business overall, if it is truly something that you want to grow out, is running paid ads on either Google or Facebook to a landing page for your product with some sort of lead magnet. So if you're selling bags, I'm just looking around my room right now, if you're selling really high-end back, cool backpacks and you're really big on Amazon, you can send people to a landing page with like seven tips to work from home if you leave us your email. And then through that email, you can, I've seen companies do multiple things. You can either transition them after they submit their email to direct them to your Amazon listing. You can throw them to long form content where it really gets into your product and sales and kind of works off of the old school advertorial model and then subtly drop links into that to send them over to your Amazon business. And really the more important part of that strategy is collecting the email and then putting them down a drip campaign or a lead generation flow so that you're, you can still send them back to your Amazon business. But you're really, the important part of that is, is that you're collecting emails and you're warming them up so that they're prepared to send other, so that they're ready to get other email content from you. That way, once you have their email, you can branch them off into your own store. You can branch them off into wherever you want to drive that traffic. You can affiliate it out if you really want to. So can you give um, maybe some examples of what types of content people could be opting in for? Yeah, I mean, I think lowest hanging fruit and the most obvious one is just a straight discount offer. So going back to my back, like right, I'm, I'm running Jeremy's Backpacks. I just run them to jeremysbackpacks.com and say, hey, if you leave us your email, you can get this 10% off discount code if you go and buy. And then you just deliver the discount code in the email. They copy and paste it into Amazon and use that at checkout. I would always think of something from a content perspective. That way you're protecting margin as well as, right? Because a problem with going with the straight discount method is that a lot of people will give you their email, get the discount code, and then immediately unsubscribe once they use the discount code. And also, isn't it something about like training your customers to buy at a discount or? Yeah. And also it's that like, if you're the lead magnet that you use will qualify candidates in one respect or another. The reason I like content is that you're, you're using their interest in whatever is related to what you're selling to keep them around. If you're giving them a discount, you're looking for cost conscious buyers and people who look for deals. And so I'm not saying that that's a wrong strategy. I've seen it work extremely well for companies that also know how to build up their back end, but yeah, that's the reason why I like to go content. I mean, right, if you're in the beauty cosmetic space, you can give seven tips to beauty for your customer base. And I think, right, I mean, again, as I mentioned before, like I'm, I don't know if Ezra Firestone is still doing this, but at one point in time in the past four or five years, he was running this strategy and he is the king of promoting content. Like I think his funnels are beautifully designed that you're running ads to content first. And then once you're bought into the lifestyle and the product and the concept, then they're going to give you sales and offers and all those things after. But that being said, I mean, you could also run self-liquidating offers. You could, I mean, I've seen companies, I know that this is not 
I wouldn't recommend this because this is kind of a played out tactic at this point, but I've seen companies run essentially the like one cent purchase, which is like a 99% off discount code if you leave their email. I would I don't like that idea just because you're not actually finding people who are going to buy from you. You're finding people who want free stuff. And so, yeah, I would really, I mean, you can always go the like minor discount code, whatever you can afford, but I would always try to think of like, what is a compelling piece of content that my customers would pay me for? And then figure out how to give that to them for free, right? It just opens up a lot of opportunities for you that isn't just selling your product one time. One thing I, I still want to cover before we finish that we were talking a little bit about building hype for your next product launches. What are some things that kind of tactics or strategies for people to build hype for new products or just to you know drive more sales? Yeah, always love talking about this. This is definitely my bread and butter and what our agency focuses on. So once you have that kind of the beginnings of that marketing machine running, what you want to do is leverage that to make sure that your customers are aware of every time that you're launching a new product and get them as excited as possible. And so if you want to see some really big examples, watch what Supreme, I think, did this really well. Kylie Cosmetics does this really well. Movement Watches does this really well. I mean, if you want to go back in the day, Apple, Jordan, right? It's, it's one of those things that the biggest brands and the most successful companies that know how to move a lot of products have really mastered. And I think there's an interesting part of how you can build your and also make a ton of money by doing this strategy really well. So basically what the concept is, is what we like to do is over a four to six week period, before launch day, we'll look through all the company's marketing channels and find what are what we'd call your tier one channels. So these are the channels that you absolutely rely on. They're probably what the team is most skilled in. And anytime that you need to drive a sale or really just make a move in the business, you're going to those tier one channels. We typically find for most of the companies that we work with, it's email and one of the socials, typically Facebook or Instagram. And then we identify your tier two channels. So what are things that are either up and coming or could use a little bit more love? So things like SMS, Facebook groups, Facebook Messenger, the other social channels that aren't necessarily as big as the primary social channel. And basically, how do we build excitement and move people from one channel to another using that excitement of the product launch to make sure that everyone knows what's coming, that they're really excited about it, and they know that we're launching this thing at this date at this time. And it's really exciting. We did a launch last week where there were 500 people on our client's website before the product even went live. Like the launch was at like 10 a.m. or something, and at 9.30, there were 500 people literally just sitting there waiting for the product to go live because they they knew what the new launch was. They knew what was coming. They were already really excited about it. There was a little extra tactic in there that we were playing up some scarcity and urgency that really drove even more sales. And they put up more numbers on that day and the next day than they did over BFCM weekend last year. Wow. And so it was really, really exciting. It was unbelievable growth. They're literally like busting at the seams in their warehouse from it. But it's really, really exciting because what you're doing is, is you're building up all of your assets while driving large lifts in revenue. And so for anyone who's been in this game for a while, you understand that the, the actual business side of e-commerce comes from cash conversion. How short can you make your cycle between when you outlay money for inventory and when you get it back in sales? And what we've been able, what this business has been able to do over the past year, I mean, now they're launching these products every two weeks. And it's a bad day if we do $100,000 in sales for them. Now they have a huge Facebook community of over 55,000 members. They've got email lists of, I don't even know how big anymore, but it's in the six 
digits. Their SMS list is almost six digits as far as subscribers go. And now they have all of these marketing channels where their customers are constantly opening and constantly looking for their messages because they, they now are trained and want to see that messaging of all of the new products that are launching. It's not just the product launches that this is impacting when they run promotions, they're seeing huge sales spikes. Their daily sales have either doubled or tripled year over year because of it. And the best part of all of this is that they've actually been decreasing their ad spend over the past 18 months from a year over year perspective because they've been able to migrate so much of their sales process onto these owned cheaper channels. Yeah, it's going to be really exciting to see where they go and our other clients go as well over the next couple of years. Last thing I'd love for you to touch on, you're saying about customer, you know, LTV extension. And so like, what, what are things, cause obviously this is super important, right? The more your customer lifetime value, the more you can pay to acquire them. And that's pretty key for, you know, success and acquisition. And so what are some things that people can do or think about in terms of, you know, extending that customer LTV? Yeah. So I think um, it really goes back to a lot of what we've been talking about already. But first and foremost thing is, is that if you don't have some sort of marketing channel where you can directly own the relationship with your customer, that's first and foremost, most important. I mean, that doesn't matter where the actual sales are happening. You, you just need to have that from a marketing perspective. So I personally would not consider any advertising channel or any affiliate channel an owned channel. Uh, I wouldn't consider any social media channel and own channel. I would think of things like email and SMS are probably the two that I'm the most bullish on. Push notifications and Facebook Messenger are doing some interesting things in the space right now. Although from the platform changes, I think Facebook Messenger is soon going to become another advertising channel. But really email list and SMS list because it gives you the opportunity to continue to sell either more of what the customer is already buying or additional products. Right. When we talked about before, like those hard costs around if you're selling something for 50 bucks and it's a 50% margin and you're spending $20 in ads, you're only making five bucks every time that you sell that product. Let's say that you could only make five bucks on that first sale, but you can get someone to come back in a couple months or maybe even six months to a year and buy a second product without having to spend that ads. Now you're capturing that 50% margin. And so like, it's not just customer life and value, but it's also your bottom line. And there's, it's really just focusing on how do you build the relationship with the customer and how do you build such an incredible experience that they want to keep coming back? Because you see a really interesting graph with the companies that really know how to do it well, where their advertising costs are just going to continue to increase. But the companies that really figure out how to get their customers to their customer retention and really figure out that model. And I mean, Amazon's the OG of this, right? Like I think it's 30 to 50% of their e-commerce profits come from cross-sells and upsells. Prime, like they know how to get their customers to come back. And so it's, that's the most important thing because the people that come back that you don't have to spend advertising on are your is your profitable customer base. Mm-hmm. And so if you, can, if you can build something where you are the arbiter of your own destiny, to me, that's what I'm the most passionate about. That's what I'm the most interested in. I also have control issues, but that's a whole nother thing in the context of being able to to build profitable e-commerce brands being a control freak and wanting to have you know more control <laughs> over your customers probably a good trait i would assume uh, a lot of the audience has a similar trait 
man, this has been really, really awesome. Got a lot of really, really great tips. Uh, appreciate you coming on and sharing. Before we wrap up, just want to have one final question. And what would be your number one tip for a business that wants to have success uh, expanding into multiple channels? Take the time to think about how your channels are going to play together, but don't hesitate and don't kind of be held back by the fact that you think that sales are going to be cannibalized from one versus the other. I see that mistake a lot. I think it's very fair and I've been there and I've done it. This is a mistake that I've made before, but if you think through who your customer is, why they're buying from you and what is the difference? Like what is the benefit of them buying from one of your channel versus two versus, I mean, hopefully eventually I wish you the best of luck and it's 20 to a hundred. Putting a little bit of time beforehand to think through what's the, what's the customer motivation from buying from one channel versus the other and then really leaning into the strength of each is that one tip that I would say really, really separates the good businesses from the great. Thank you for that tip as well as all of the value and knowledge that you have shared with this conversation. And um, so to wrap up, Jeremy, please let the audience know how they can get in touch, uh, find out more about you and what you're doing. I really appreciate the time. This was a lot of fun. So if you want to listen to our podcast to learn more about building out new own channels and e-commerce tactics, the podcast name is Messenger Mastermind. We're on every major po podcasting platform, Apple Music, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts. And if you want to learn more about our agency, please feel free to reach out to me, jeremy at messengermastermind.co. Happy to answer any questions, share any resources that we have, and always looking for new and awesome businesses to work with and see how we can help them scale. This has been the Ecom Exits podcast with Nate Ginsberg. If you're enjoying the Ecom Exits podcast, show your support by subscribing, rating, and reviewing this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. This will help other smart entrepreneurs find us. We appreciate your support. We have a new episode every week on the Ecom Exits podcast. So, catch you next time.